Hey, I'm Jane Oakley, a Matilda alumni footballer, number 36, and you're listening to Radio Karen. Stay tuned. You're listening to Rowan Prant Method, where myself and a unique guest discuss topics that I'm interested in and that you might find relevant to your life. On today's episode, we have Peter Lustig, who is a professional peacemaker. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you, Rowan. It's uh, delightful to be here with you. Thanks. For the third time you've had to say that to me, mate, we actually had unfortunate technical difficulties last week when we were scheduled in, and then we had a similar thing to unfold now when we went live. So obviously we've started again. So this is uh, the universe challenging us, and I think that's probably something we can discuss because I think it's, uh, it's something that all men and all human beings face anyway, uh, this adversity that comes up in life. So we'd love to dig into that at some point. Well, we could. Why don't we just dive in? Because it, it sounds to me like uh, the universe. This was third time lucky for us, as you said. Yeah. And um, what I'm often alert to, and perhaps not as often as I'd like, is when is this message that this isn't working a real message from the universe, and when is it just a, a stuff up that we need to work through and be determined about? That is an excellent question. Because you could justify both and some people would use an obstacle or a hurdle as an excuse to not take action and pursue their goals. And other people would ignore the messages when they need you to stop and move on to something else. So how do you differentiate between the two? Um, What I, well, to some degree, I I reckon it's just gut instinct. Yeah. Uh, And I also reckon it's got to do with experiencing that a number of times and noticing hey, the, the universe was pretty persistent this time. Um, for example, a, a couple of weeks ago when we were going to do this the first time, it really stuffed up and there was yeah. just no way we were going to be able to get it sorted. Yeah. Um, whereas 10 minutes ago, it, it looked like it was an issue but something that was easily soluble. So last time it felt like, well, I reckon the universe is saying let's put all of this on pause, which – as it happens, worked out really well because we spent last weekend together and, and, and the connection between us was way deeper and um, now than it was two weeks ago. That is such and, a fantastic example, Peter, because yeah. literally many people would be frustrated with the circumstances that we face. Obviously, we're both eager to have this episode last week. We had some technical difficulties. There's a lot of brainstorming. It turned out to be a simple problem, but you know, we ran out of time and I really didn't want to cut the time short with you in that particular episode. So we rescheduled. But as you said, we really didn't reflect on the dates that you know we had an intensive training together over the weekend and obviously get to uh, build more of a connection and learn a little bit more about what's going on from Mankind Project and your involvement as well. So it really set us up for an excellent position today with lots more to talk about. So it's, it's funny about learning when to listen to the sign and I guess not being beaten up by the fact that it might not work at that time because it's not the right time. Maybe another sure. time is the right time. Let, let me let me take it a little further. At the time, I was what was going through my mind was something like WTF, this guy's not sorted, <laughs> you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I had I had probably about five or six judgments about you yeah. and about your readiness and your preparedness yeah. and um, and how that was impacting me, yeah. um, which, which were certainly negative. Yeah. All right? and, and I remember having those come up and and just sort of noticing them and not not playing to them. And I thought, let's just see how this goes 
and see what happens. And and what happened, as you were saying, was that we simply adjourned or you know postponed it to to today. And that worked out beautifully for me because uh, at the time I was fairly rushed as well. Yeah. And in the end, um, having gone from being quite judgmental about how you were stuffing up, which was not true, it's just my story. Yeah. Um, I actually got to a place of, oh, that was really good. You know, I feel really good about this. And I feel like when we when we come together again on the 31st, it's, it's going to be way better. That has brought up a couple of things that I did intend to discuss today. So one of them is the stories that we tell ourselves and the judgments that we make based on the circumstances, the people we interact with, the, the situations that we're faced with and the adversity that we come across in our lives. How much of an impact do these stories have? And just in your perspective, from the men that you've been working with throughout your time. Um, well, forget about the men that I work with for, for a moment. What about me? Yeah. Well, no. let's dig into you. Let's let's All look right. at how the story impacts you. <laughs> Spoken like a true recovering narcissist. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, sure. Certainly, I believe the shit I, I tell myself sometimes. Yeah. Uh, am I allowed to say that on this Yes, you are. Program? Don't worry. Oh, I, I, uh, yeah. okay. well, like, obviously, if it adds to the, to the feel and it's relevant, then uh, there's no issue with it, but we just don't want to have okay. it every second word. Sure. Um, I, I, I got your shit just then. Fine. <laughs> um, okay. So um, I, and, and, and I'm certain just about every human on the planet, ends up um, on, on insufficient information or on information that they think is sufficient, mm. making up a story about what's really going on. Uh, and we, we all do that. And we do it from a very, very, very early age. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking about how, how I can apply that to, to myself so, so that I can speak from the first person. Mm. So when I was a young person, um, I think I became um, the lawyer that I am professionally, uh, partly out of a sense of uh, an overdeveloped sense of fairness. Mm. So what I read into that is that as a younger person, I, was, I probably felt as if life was dealing me you know, a deal that was quite unfair. What I and and I, I don't frankly remember all of the circumstances of that. However, what I got out of it was that I became a warrior. Yeah. Meaning that. Um, in any circumstance, I'll step towards danger usually. You know, you, you you put your hand on your sword hilt and I'll bring out my thermonuclear device, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> as opposed to freezing or, or, or fleeing. Yes. All right. Yeah, and, I get that and, sense and, about you. It's probably why we gel well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and, and so that's, if you like, my, my default response. And a huge amount of my learning ever since has yeah. been um, how else can I respond? Mm. Do I have to? Do I have to always go to the to the default because I was forever getting in all sorts of bother and trouble mm. um, when when I did that inappropriately? It's a it's an interesting thing, particularly when you say in terms of being inappropriate, because you know there's so much behaviour that is context dependent. So there's definitely a time and a place to be a warrior and that theme and ideology really resonates with me and carried out in situations throughout my life. But also, I also had some negative experiences where it was simply unhelpful and had to reflect and where was appropriate and where wasn't. So where did you start noticing that there were other ways to manage things or navigate your way through life? Oh, that's an interesting one too because 
the reality was that I was navigating my way differently through life for a whole heap of time before I started becoming more aware or conscious of it. Mm. Um, probably in my mid to late teens, I suspect I started, and it's been a continuing process ever since, so you know, half a century or thereabouts. And what was the shift that happened in your teens that has sort of led you on this pursuit? Ooh. Um, I'd say that uh, a lot of it was was having a, a father who um, was uh, way out of harmony with himself. Uh, in those days, it was called being a manic depressive. And these days, it's called bipolar. Mm. And um, uh, he sort of went from being extremely depressed to being incredibly wild and amazingly creative, but out of touch with at least most people's sense of reality, certainly mm. not his. And uh, that shook my world up big time, wow. hugely. Um, so what happened after that was I, I believe I, I was always on an inquiry of, you know, what's all that about for him? And ultimately, what what does that teach me or where does that lead me? You know, why am I here, if you like? And, and to answer the question, why am I here, um, I need to be an observer of not only what's around me, but also what's inside. Yeah. It's very interesting that the lessons that you got from your experience with your father, I've known, I've worked with and known personally a lot of people that have experienced or suffered from mental illness or have people that they care about. And it's a heavy load for kids to grow up with. Looking from the outside in, and obviously there's a lot of introspection in, in your ways and the, the projects that you work on as well, and I'd love to talk about uh, the Conscious Wheels project in the future, but how can people become more aware of things like, not necessarily bipolar, but maybe the different archetypes that they play in their life and when they're actually in the driver's seat? Mm. Great question. Uh, I reckon that they can do it now. Anyone who's listening right now could just <clears throat> take a step back from their active listening, which is not to say that they should stop listening, but to notice the part of them that is noticing them listening. Mm. Um, in process-oriented psychology terms, it's called a meta-communicator. So the part of me that is noticing me in this conversation with you, Rowan, yep. and noticing what's going on in it, noticing its ebb and flow, and where it seems to be going and making judgments about it and making assessments about it and, and about me and about you, all of that stuff. And that, in a sense, removes me slightly from the conversation itself mm. when, when I'm in that place. And that gives me, in some sense, uh, a greater awareness of what's, what's actually happening for me. So you're essentially a witness to what is going on in, yeah. in this interaction. Yeah. What a great summary, yes. Yeah, that's very yeah. interesting. And, and the more I can become my own witness, especially if I'm I'm not making assumptions about what happened, and that returns to what we started with about stories, mm. if I'm using real data as opposed to this and this happened and therefore I must be terrific or I must be an awful person or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, then, then I'm starting to grow in my own awareness. The more aware I am of who I am at being in the world, 
uh, perhaps the, the greater impact I can have, both on myself and on others. It's a very interesting thing. And when you consider stories, most people, you know, whether they realize it or not, yes, we are making judgments at every given moment. Some can be helpful, some can be unhelpful, but we're constantly scanning for information, data, and evidence to support our story, whether or not yeah. it's helpful or unhelpful. So we're talking uh-huh. about being a witness to the story. When can we actually have power over the narrative that we have? Hmm. Uh, just simply when, when we choose to do something. Yeah, the action. And the, well, the, it's it's not necessarily the physical action that we might take, but the mental attitude that we bring to it. Mm. If, if, for example, I I look, I, I see a woman who, to me, is looking amazingly attractive, and I might have some sort of interaction with her. And what happens when when I try to explore that is, um, she rebuffs me in some way. It might be really gently and, and gracefully. I might make up a story of, oh, you know, I'm not good enough. Yeah. Now, is that true? Maybe. But the reality is that I spoke to a person and and they simply didn't want to uh, enter into uh, a continuing dialogue which might have had, you know, uh, a, a trail which led us closer and closer together. Yeah. And you know, on, on, on in a uh, in a singles night or some such, who knows where we might end up. Yeah. Uh, but for all I know, she was she was having a terrible time. Even if she was being absolutely gentle and graceful about it, she might be a woman who who just you know who, who was married and and was completely happy with her partner or in a partnership, regardless of whether she was married or not. There, there, there could be easily a million reasons as to why. You know, she was perhaps rebuffing me, um, and I was busy saying, "Oh, it's because I'm not good enough, or or I'm not likable, or I'm not lovable, or I'm not worthy, or I'm not something." You know, which is the story about me. But the reality is, it could have been completely about her, and I wouldn't know it. Yeah, yeah, you've touched on limiting beliefs here, and we all have them in some way, shape, or form. And it's funny, yeah. again, we're talking about gathering evidence to support these limiting beliefs. Someone might face that rejection or what might appear to be rejection, and as you say, create that story that they're not good enough or that they're unlovable or whatever it may be, and then they consistently go through life and it affects their choices and they keep gathering more data to support that. Yeah, and, and, and indeed, the, sorry, the, the way it works is – well, gee, that didn't work. I'm going to try that woman over there. Yeah. Right? But I'm already going over there with a, a sense of, oh, gee, you know, maybe I, I wasn't good enough in that one. You know, I'm going to have to really be good enough in this one, which is playing to I'm not good enough because I'm trying to not be not good enough. Yeah. All right? So so I go to, to the next one, and if it so happens that um, she's really tired and wants to go to, <laughs> to bed to sleep, <laughs> and is literally about to leave when I walk over there yeah. and I'll get another no, yeah. again, perhaps really gracefully and beautifully, it's going to start reinforcing that story. And pretty soon, two or three rejections later, um, you know, I, I'm definitely the person that I'm telling myself I am, which may or may not be true. That's really interesting, that analogy. I know it reminds me of a discussion I was having with someone recently about having early wins and how important they are for, for kids in sport, for example. Obviously, yeah. we want people to be resilient and overcome challenges and go through hard times and things. 
But having some early successes at the start really will solidify those feel-good feelings and how they feel about the sport or whatever it may be and set them up to continue moving forward. If they have a streak of losses, it's pretty hard for them to stick with it. But the uh, the difference between winning and losing is also depends on who else is in the competition, like who they're up against, who they're comparing themselves to. And the same thing as you're saying about potentially approaching someone that you're interested in. They could have been just having a bad day. Maybe they're taken or whatever it is. Or maybe you have a really lucky day and you talk to someone that you're interested in and they give you a lot of positive feedback. You're like, you know what? I'm the hot stuff. I'm feeling good. And you build this story up and there's that confidence that grows. So um, it's funny how it can just happen based on that experience. Absolutely. And um, certainly with children, it seems to me it's vitally important that we bring them up not to criticise them uh, overly, uh, but but rather to guide them, uh, to encourage them, uh, to and, and indeed, uh, this is a, this is a, a case in point perhaps um, for young boys to not do the traditional thing of saying stop crying, suck it up, be a man, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, which which is just terrible. It, it's actually teaching a young boy to not to not allow the feelings that he's feeling. Uh, to actually be felt by him, it, it's a, it's a, it puts him in a horrible bind. I'm upset and I want to let let my upset out, and somebody comes along and says, like a parent or parental figure, "Don't cry." What am I to do? I'm going to be even more upset, and and eventually enough of that come, comes along, and I'm going to start um, numbing myself. Yes, from feelings, and then. If I still can't do it, I'll start numbing myself with things like sex or drugs or alcohol or all of those, or or or, um, or, or doing risky behaviour in all sorts of other ways. Yeah. I love that you've brought that up. We've had a lot of people coming on talking about addiction in the past. People forget that these are they're maladaptive coping strategies. They're fulfilling yeah. a need of some sort, and often it's what we would perceive to be negative emotions that have stemmed from some sort of trauma, experience, limiting beliefs, or whatever it may be. But people take the approach of, look, these feelings are uncomfortable, so they either push them away and numb them, as you mentioned. Another strategy people use is, you know what, these aren't helpful and they're inconvenience. we must manage them. So there's all these strategies that we can use to manage emotions, But a big thing that I've seen with you, with the work that I've done with you and a few other people, particularly through Mankind Project, is actually enabling yourself to experience them and lean into them and feel them and potentially express them where safely. It's a a unique concept. Do you mind uh, expanding on that and exploring it with me? Uh, I don't know that it's all that unique. Uh, I think people who've got their shit together have been doing it for, for millennia. Um, I think it's few and far between from the amount of people that I've known that are very successful in particular areas, emotional expression is usually something that's underutilized and it's definitely going to impact on people's connection that they have with people because how well do they really know someone if they can't be the real them? Well, their connection, not just with other people, but with themselves. Mm. And that's really where it all starts. Great point. Uh, Because um, if I'm feeling something and I deny it, then that feeling will come out in some other way. Uh, if I'm, for example, feeling angry uh, and, and I'm not able to or allowing it to be expressed, uh, it'll come out sideways in probably in terms of potentially physical violence against people that I love or that I say that I love or that I do love, but in the moment 
um, the anger is there and it drives me and I lose my sense of proportion and 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 context and I might I might engage in some sort of domestic violence for example mm. um, if if on the other hand I acknowledge the feeling and I am able to express that anger in a really safe and congruent sort of way uh, to say hey I'm really angry about that, that. Yeah, I went for that job interview and I really didn't get a proper chance. They, they, they asked me questions that were right off, completely off topic. And, and when I started to answer them, they, they changed the question again. And, and I never really got a chance or whatever it might have been. Um, and do a rant. Yeah. You know, have, have you ever been uh, in the situation where you, you've complained, wanted to complain about something? You've had a shitty day. <laughs> yeah. oh, you, you, you've had yeah. that experience. Okay. Ex you so definitely. What, <laughs> so what, what about this? Um, you, what you can, what, what, what's a really beautiful way to do that, if, especially if you've got a, a friend with you or a partner, say, listen, I, I, I've just got to let some shit go here. Um, and, and you time it, three minutes. Okay, so you've got three minutes to, to rant and rave and scream and, and, and just complain the heck out of whatever it is is that situation. And, and you, you, you don't do it mildly. You go right over the top. You completely go into hyperbole and, and, and total exaggeration yeah. for three full minutes. And then you stop. It gets it out of your system. Yeah. Or, or if, if it doesn't, it gets a whole heap of it out at least. You know, and, and when I've done it, and, and when when friends have done it, um, we end up laughing. Yeah, this is really shitty, and yet we're laughing about it. You know, how's that happen? Because we're allowing the emotion to come through. And um, if it if it doesn't, it'll also come out not just sideways in in, in uh, antisocial behaviour of some kind. It can also come out in in body symptoms. Mm. For example, all, all sorts of um, rashes, uh, all sorts of cancers. Yeah. And I'm not saying that, that they are one causes the other. However, uh, for, for example, if, if you're in the middle of winter in Melbourne and there's flu going around, you, you've got flu viruses on board no matter what. Yeah. The more run down you are, then the more likely it is that your immune system is not going to stop the ones that you've got and they will start growing and building and you'll end up getting flu. So one of the things that you can you can do to help your own immune system is to express your emotions. Mm. And yet if you don't and if you're really down, well, you're just not understanding what's going on with yourself, uh, you're, you're blanking out or... or uh, pushing stuff down, um, that's not going to cause a flu, but it will probably contribute to you getting a flu. 100% agree. And I love that simple strategy or exercise that you just shared with us for people to express that in as little as three minutes. It's funny because children have been having tantrums since they were little. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. parents will say, you know, we don't have time for that. Get on with that. As you pointed out, don't cry. You know, we've got things to do. Behave yourself sort of thing. But Adults, there is such shame around feeling negative emotions and the stigma that comes from other people. If you wanted to have a vent just randomly, there's a lot of stigma attached to it. People don't want to hear it. They just want you to conform and continue and be like a robot. Emotions aren't really a part of the deal for most people unless they're pleasant and you're fun to be around. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, the pleasant emotions are, are terrific, and, and I certainly strive to have more of them in my life than otherwise. And what I've discovered is that the pleasant emotions are more pleasant when I also allow the unpleasant ones in mm. and give them airspace. Um, how would it be if, you know, you've got a child and um, uh, the child throws a tantrum and while the child is throwing the tantrum, somehow you communicate to them, um, look, it's, it's great that you're doing what you're doing. Keep on going until you're done. Yeah. All right. And when you're done, uh, I'm going to have a go. Yeah. <laughs> I really wouldn't like that, that. Wouldn't that be something, you know, getting down on the floor and, and ranting, raving and screaming, um, you know, next to your three-year-old once, they, once, once they've finished? That is an excellent you, strategy. You reckon that the three-year-old might think twice about it next time or at least have some fun doing it next time and not be, not be judged and be told you, you shouldn't be doing that, etc. There's, yeah. there's clearly an upset that's going on with them. So opposing the upset only builds it up. Mm. But in some way telling the, the, the person or the child in this instance that what they're feeling is entirely appropriate for whatever reason, don't need reasons, and yeah. to support them in, in, in holding that space and working through it because that's the only way to deal with emotions is to work through them. That is a good point. So many people... We basically think that negative emotions shouldn't happen, but they're essentially, they're a part of the deal. They're part of the human experience and people just try and push yeah. them away, numbing them, et cetera, that we talked about. But there's a difference between holding space and actually just being present compared to connecting with the emotion, both internally with yourself and with the other person, allowing them to express it and process it. It's a very unique skill and it's something that I'm working on personally and it didn't come natural to me for a very long time, particularly when in our hustle culture where we just strive and get on with things and you know, yep. we aim for success, such a big factor around male and human identity. What is the definition of a man or an integrated man to you? There's no right or wrong answer. I'm just curious. Um, to me, an integrated man is a man not not. A, it's not a man who doesn't lose his shit from time to time, who doesn't get angry, and who who doesn't do inappropriate things and behaviour and all the rest of it. But essentially, an integrated man is somebody who's most of the time um, aware of what he's doing and why he's doing it. Yeah. Um, or, or e e even if he's not aware of why he's doing it, he has this capacity to notice what's going on um, and, and to hold himself in that space. So um, That's an excellent answer. Yeah, what I'm hearing in a sense, and I think it's an, encultural, an enculturated thing in our society, is that everyone is, quote, required, unquote, to be perfect. Yeah. And, and we're a, uh, a competence-addicted culture as well. So to be incompetent in some way or less than perfect um, is a big cultural no-no. And um, even if I'm by myself and I'm not doing what I reckon is what I ought to be doing, I can, I can be my own worst critic and be down on myself, yet alone doing it in public. Um, over the weekend, I'm... Uh, You'll recall that one of the men uh, was leading a uh, leading a piece, and what he was doing was um, he was clearly discomfort uncomfortable to the extreme in what he was doing. Mm. 
and yet he kept on going. Do you remember that? No, I don't think he was a part of my group, was he? Uh, he was. Okay. Uh, it was. Uh, yeah. In any event, at the end of what he what what he was speaking, it was just beautiful because he was he had been so completely uncomfortable with what he was doing, but he was owning it. Yep. And so, to me, it was a, it was a huge um, uh, object lesson in in this man's personal courage. That was definitely. I didn't. I don't recall that event, but I did see a lot of people getting, let's call them uncomfortable emotions out. And the amazing thing was, it was a safe space. So I'd love you to talk about the making of the container, because I still think it's context dependent and appropriate. Yes, there are times where we need to perform. People have got jobs, etc. They need to be able to follow certain guidelines, but they also need that space, whether they give it to them themselves with that strategy that you have with a close friend or someone they care about or in a men's group like Mankind Project at an I group or something like that, but in a safe environment. Would you say that that's correct to make sure that you're around the right people and it is appropriate? So for sure. And, and isn't that what most workplace issues are about? Yeah. This is not a safe space for me to either do my job or be myself or both yep. in some way. That's what all the uh, anti-harassment policies are about, why they're in place. It's, it's, it's trying to have places where humans live and be and work be safer rather than otherwise. We're also a safety-addicted culture too, I might add. Yeah. Very uh, in, in a big way, <laughs> you know. And if a if a, a council doesn't put a sign up uh, on a clearly dangerous beach to say this is a dangerous beach, you know, they, they might end up being sued. Just might be terrible. You will there laugh. You My partner works for local government, and she was telling me about a time when people would call up and complain that there were too many birds in the area. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> unsafe with the birds, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, you're right. This this theory of safety, it's again, how far do you go? Because there are some risks that come with living and through expressing emotions. It's a part of it, and there, it's, there's more than that. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. frankly, being born is a death sentence. Well, we don't get out alive, do we? <laughs> it always ends the same way. <laughs> yeah, and the real question is not not. Am I going to die? But in what way and when? Yeah. And and what what am I going to? What if anything? I'm am I going to take with me? And what am I going to leave behind? In fact, you know, what's my legacy? Um, you mentioned conscious wills before, so maybe that might be a segue. I would love that. It's uh, <laughs> I've had a discussion with a number of people that I highly respect about what they intend to leave behind as a legacy. And when you start yeah. questioning your own mortality, it's just something to consider. Obviously, people are acquiring assets and achievements and things, but they can't take them with them and they will be forgotten. So you brought it up, legacy. Yes, the segue to Conscious Will's project. What is it? Uh, it's quite simple. Um, so many people are engaged in, in conflict over bequests and wills and estates and the like. Uh, every year in Victoria alone, literally thousands of writs or uh, originated motions are filed in the Supreme Court where people are challenging what a, a willmaker has, has left or not left. Um, so a conscious will is a process of firstly VMVing, vision, mission, valuing with the willmaker so it's a facilitated process where we sit with the willmaker and say, well, you know, what are your values? 
or, or if you like, what vision do you have for your descendants, this next generation? What about two or three generations from now, 100 years from now? How would you like the world to be if you could have some impact on that from here? Um, and then looking at that, we can ascertain, well, what are the values that underlie that? And then finally, doing the will itself is the, the putting those values and that vision into action by way of a mission. So mission is vision plus action. Yeah. So once we've got that will done, we would gather together all of the actual or potential beneficiaries. And again, you, you were talking earlier about a safe space. Um, provided that safe, in a facilitated meeting, provided everyone in that space feels safe, then uh, the, the job of the facilitator would be to say, okay, so here's the will. Um, what does everyone think about it? Mm. And some people might be very supportive and others might not be and some might be very vehemently opposed to it. But the point is that if it's a safe space, then everyone gets to speak. And until they have... Um, then the willmaker won't know whether or not he or she or her, her, his or her will is going to be challenged after their death. So if there's some divergence or difference, the willmaker can take that on board in, in doing a revision mm. and, and perhaps continuing to revise until there's something there that might not be totally everyone's delight but at least acceptable to everyone. And then, of course, having them sign off on that. Yeah. To say that in the absence of there being um, some some huge change in circumstances between now and the willmaker's death, we, we undertake not to challenge this will. So ultimately what it's about is willmakers being courageous, albeit with some support from the facilitator, to actually address family schisms and differences and divergences. The, those situations where... Oh, you always loved her more than me, yeah. or you've always favoured him over her or over me, or whatever it might be. It, it's saying that sort of stuff is going to come out more than likely if it's ever going to come out in a fight over the will when you're gone and when you can't do anything about it. So why not do something about it now while you do actually have a say in it? What a unique way to resolve any family conflict that might not be resolved in the instant that someone dies. It's actually yeah. bringing these things to the surface in a, in a safe container to have an open discussion and get it all out. Absolutely. And not only get it all out, but hopefully heal it. Yeah, that's a yeah. very have, unique have, thing. Have, have some harmony creep in. Talking about a safe space, what characteristics define a safe space and how do you create it? <laughs> okay. Uh, a safe space to me is where I'm free to express my deepest uh, feelings in, and concerns in a way where I'm not going to feel judged or attacked. Okay. Yeah. I can just express, express them, provided I'm expressing them in a way which is not uh, abusive or violent towards somebody else. Is there a time and a place for that? Can you view the world as a safe space at all times? Or would of course you not. be. Yeah. No, See, this is something. People are dying every moment. Yes. 
I'm glad that we're talking about this because obviously there are organizations like the Mankind Project that do provide this safe space, which is judgment-free and confidential for men to go and express these emotions and be, yes. be held in vulnerability in that space. And obviously if people have a strong connection with a partner, family member, friend or something where appropriate and they have that bond, they're free to be that way. But some people take a little bit further and they try and embody that freedom in everyday life where it might be considered inappropriate? Um, sure. I mean, if, if, if I'm walking down the street and um, uh, there's a footy match just com- concluded and um, my team won and there's a whole heap of the supporters from the other team around there, <laughs> you know, I, I might not want to, you know, say what's really on my mind about that bloody match. Have you learnt this the hard way, Peter, in your younger <laughs> day? Is there a story behind this? No, not, not really. Uh, but I, I've, I've had a few fights when I was a younger bloke. Yeah. Um, not very successfully. But, um <laughs> Very interesting. So in terms of safety, people that want to seek out this safety, and personally for me, I'll share how we met. We met through the new warrior training. And connection is such an important aspect of well-being, particularly for men, and it's something most men really struggle with. And often they connect through suffering, but in maladaptive ways. So I wanted to check it out. So I attended, and I, I went there professionally to see what was available to people. And I got a lot out of it that I didn't expect to get. And I carried away a lot of learnings and been integrating them myself. And obviously, I've attended the pit training, developed a relationship with yourself and other people and had some of the people involved on the podcast and definitely keen to get more involved. How can people find these safe havens or these these places of safety? Um, I reckon the first step would be that uh, a person realising that that's what they're looking for. Yeah. What are the signs? Because some people might not even know that they need it. I know I didn't. Um, if I'm feeling isolated, as opposed to enjoying my time being alone, uh, if I'm feeling isolated and I'm not able to connect with other people or uh, the connections that I do have are, are really um, staid and archetypical, like you know, going into a, a cafe and getting a cup of coffee and, and that, or a chai, and that's that's the extent of my human connection. Yeah. Um, or I have relationships, for example, in work, but they're all on a fairly uh, ephemeral and um, surface-type level. Um, most people crave, I certainly crave, really deep, open, vulnerable, juicy connections, basically. Um, and if I don't have enough of that in my life, I'll start going spare. I can. That, that's when I go. That's when I go out into nature. Yeah. <laughs> sort of we'll, do, a, do a reset. Let's but, look but, into that in a moment. I'd love to talk about forest bathing, but personally, the reason I do this podcast is I was reflecting on when I would meet characters out and about, and you just have a great vibe, and you'd have an amazing conversation, and you're learning, and just it could just go on forever, and you're having such a great time. And I thought, how can I recreate this on a regular basis? Hence why I ended up with Radio Karam doing the podcast and speaking to people like yourself. And I love that connection, plus it's learning and it's generally to do with things that I'm interested in and would like to know more about. I love it. And and it is that connection that you build. But that's not available to everyone. So things like Mankind Project is such a great strategy and a resource for people to access. So we we, we need to say at this point that 
MKP or Mankind Project is not a sponsor of this podcast. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> um, what I'm hearing actually is that you're, you're um, in doing your podcast, you're at least partly on mission. Yeah. So your mission, at least internally, is to have interest in your life, uh, have interesting people from whom you can learn and, and, and watch and listen, um, and also to put that out into the greater world. Which is a beautiful mission. There's uh, so m- quite- sorry to cut you off. There's so many people out there with such interesting stories, and they've got passions, and they've dedicated their lives to particular fields. And I love giving them a platform to share this information and make it more accessible to other people as well. I personally find every episode valuable, yeah. and everyone that I've been speaking to is finding at least some value. There's something for everyone. And I think with the, the way the internet is around now, yes, there is that highlight reel comparison where everyone's aiming to be perfect because they're focused on the highlight reel. But the access to information, for, uh, for example, people are going to listen to the content that you've shared and are going to walk away with that three-minute strategy that you also shared. That's great. That The amount of lives that that can change, it's amazing. You can't really quantify it. Mm. Well, I, I, I hope so. And, and my compliments to you because you're putting this out there in the world in a really big way. Um, you asked on our second failed attempt to get started um, earlier today, uh, What? What? why do I call myself a peacemaker? Yeah. And that's very much tied up with my mission in the world, which is finding both peace in myself and helping that to be out in the world as well. Uh, and I do that. Strangely enough, as a lawyer, mm. so most people think of lawyers as, as some form of attack dog, um, and I've certainly been that, or as I used to call it, a head kicker. And I, I've done many years of head kicking type litigation, yeah, and adversarial litigation, which is really the only way we we do litigation across the planet, um, almost the only way. Um, absolutely divides people. You know, it pays me if you and I are having a, a, a court battle, then I'm going to paint myself as incredibly good, you're incredibly bad, you're doing the opposite at the same time. Um, and so even if we only have a small difference, we polarise, we differentiate from each other. And, um, and, and, and of course, we can't speak to each other either because that's been done through mouthpieces and it's been done in a, in a dance, you know, where... The rules are something that most lay people don't really understand. Mm. Uh, and it's really expensive and time-consuming. Whereas uh, if, if, for example, um, a separating couple come to me and um, they're interested in doing a collaborative uh, separation process, then um, what we do is sit in uh, a joint circle with uh, two collaboratively trained lawyers in, in Victoria, mostly in Australia. We have a, a psychologist who is also collaboratively trained and who operates as a, um, a neutral facilitator. And we'll sit down with the, the two parents, the separating couple, and say, what are your hopes and dreams for your children? Mm. And nobody ever says, oh, look, I want my kids to, to you know, make Hitler seem like... Um, you know, an angel, you know, I want I want my children to see if they, they can devastate half the population of the planet. Nobody said that. Yeah. <laughs> Even if they occasionally think it. Yeah. What they what they essentially say is I want my children to, to grow up happy and healthy and to reach their full potential as human beings and contribute to the evolution of 
the human race generally in the universe, specifically in the, in the universe generally, some variant on that. And we whiteboard it. And then down the track, when things might get difficult in a negotiation, in a needs-based inquiry as to what do both parties need to be able to sustain themselves and their children in two separate households ongoingly, um, when things get difficult, we might remind them of that and say, listen, is your behaviour right now going to appropriately model graceful, generous conflict resolution such that it's going to help your children to be those sort of people? Or is it going to, is it going to have them crash and burn? That is a great point. People really forget that their children are going to model their behaviour as opposed to listen to what they say. Yeah. Interesting. The children don't even need to be present there because they get the, the, the energy of it regardless. Yeah, energy is a big factor. And we were talking about yeah. stories before. So, so sorry, you, you, were, you were talking about safety. Yep. So um, in, a, in a collaboration, if I'm noticing the person on the other side of, of the table or, or the other side of the circle that it's sometimes been having some sort of emotional action or reaction, they might be shuddering or breathing deeply or rapidly or something. I can say, hey, what's going on for you? And if the, the space that I and my fellow professionals have created is a safe one for that person to actually open up and say what's going on, and they do, I will have briefed up my client to say, hey, if he starts talking like that, what I want you to do is mirror him or her. Right. Say say the words that you're hearing back to him, so that he he actually gets that you're hearing him. Yeah. All right. And and when when he's he's done, um, validate what he's saying. Tell him how it makes sense by reason of what he's already told you, and then empathise with him and how how go into the feeling realm. It's called an imago dialogue, if you, if you know about that. No. And and then summarise it as well. And at the end of that time, he'll feel very, very deeply heard. Right? And so the emotional charge goes out of it. None of that is, of course, agreeing with him. It's simply letting him know that he's been really heard. Yeah. So I don't need to thump the table anymore or get agitated or breathe rapidly or demand an unreasonable amount of the net matrimonial assets. I'm, I, I'm allowed to ah, drop into myself and feel calm about stuff. Hey, this is a person who actually gets me, even if I don't want to live with her anymore. What a great strategy, and that will carry over, hypothetically, there are children involved into co-parenting. Such a, such yeah. a great strategy. Yeah. Peter, we have run out of time. I thoroughly enjoyed the episode and we will definitely have to have you back because I feel like we could have kept talking for another couple of hours. There's still lots more I'd like to cover. So before we end, how can people find you? Uh, Go to my website, petersmustig.net. Have a look around, both uh, collaborative work and conscious wills uh, or just, um, yeah, get in touch with you, Rowan, and I'm sure I'd be happy for you to pass my contact details on. Excellent. So if you can't find Peter on social media, everyone, feel free to contact me. I'm happy to give you his details. He will definitely be back on again because he's a wealth of wisdom with more to share. Peter, thank you for coming. I hope you had fun. I did. And thank you. Um, I've learned a little bit about myself tonight. (laughs) Well, I'm very glad. Thanks, everyone. Hello, my name is Dave Graney. I am an underworld musician of many years standing. I'm here to ask you to tune into my fellow traveller, my comrade, Radio Radio Caram.
called TAD to remodel my place. Said I wanted it to be that kind of place. Knee deep in the reno, sinking in our fights. Other shonky builders waking me up at night. And Adam plays the boss man. He listens to the customer. Don't you remember? He built this kitchen. He built this kitchen with TAD. We built this kitchen. We built this kitchen with TAD. We built this kitchen. We built this kitchen with TAD.